Welcome everyone to the recording of the New Year's question and answer session, which was originally recorded live on YouTube. So I've quickly just added a couple of edits to make it accessible to the podcast. Um, I hope you enjoy and Happy New Year to everyone. Cool. There we go. All right. Well, welcome everyone to uh, the New Year's stream um 2022 happy new year everyone um thanks for all the support in the year um so yeah i think at the moment where i'm actually well hermetics is actually about four people off 10k subs so hopefully this stream might um raise the volume a little there you go hopefully if uh <clears throat> thanks for the thanks for the donation. Uh hopefully if this stream goes well then we're at 10k subs. Um I'd have thought we will be. So yeah, I've got a load of questions. I might as well get going. I've got a load of questions from Discord, Patreon and loads of other places uh to to go through. <clears throat> and then if anyone obviously asks questions then they're more than welcome to. So um, the first question is a pretty big one. Uh, is have you follow have followed you since the first episode? Thank you, whoever this is. Would love to know if appropriate your reasons for moving towards Catholicism. If this hasn't been touched on already, um, I touched on it a little bit when I first announced it in the last in the last Q and A in October. Um, and ultimately, and I mean, she'll come up again in a bit because I think there's a question about her. Um, which is Edith Stein's reply to this when people asked her, St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross, when she was asked, you know, why did you become Catholic? Why did you head over to Catholicism? She would say, Secreta meum mihi, which means this secret belongs to me. And she didn't mean like she was keeping it secretive, but as in it's an internal secret and she wouldn't be able to explain it. Uh, even if she wanted to, right? So that is probably the cornerstone because ultimately, right, a lot of people when they ask about why did you go, I don't know, why did you, when they ask, generally ask people about conversion stories, um, be it Catholicism, Islam, whatever, a lot of people begin from practical considerations. So they're saying like, for instance, a lot of people know that I'm somewhat traditional. It's like, did you move over to Catholicism for... Uh, for traditional values or something like that. It's like you can have traditional values without, um, you know, having to be a Catholic and having to subscribe to all of that. And I think ultimately the basis for any conversion, obviously, is a, is foremost and f- first and foremost is going to be faith. And that uh, that isn't something that is ever going to be able to be explained. Like, like you can't really ever explain or articulate in words why you suddenly believe in God when you once didn't, right? Um, but, but I mean, perhaps if that question had been more specific, like why this instead of that, or why this instead of other things, um, you know, maybe, but reasons for moving towards it, uh, found God, there you go, found Christ, that's as far as I can really go. Uh, someone just said we just hit 10k, so, uh, wow, that's pretty, that's pretty astounding, really, thanks everyone for 10,000. Um, there's a comment from the first ever Dmitry Orlov 
interview where the guy says how someone comments how in the world has this podcast only got 700 subscribers and that was like in 2018 so i always like that comment i always look back at it to try keep base but 10k is amazing thanks guys i mean with with twitter and other little platforms i mean that's bordering on like 20k total now so that's really really great so thanks for all the uh support yeah i'll show you there's a question about my books in a in a bit so i can i might enlarge the camera for that um so the next question was which books on the church fathers church history and theology have you read i mean uh right uh church history i began a huge book called christianity the first three thousand years by i don't know how don't know how to pronounce this like diam made mcculloch um i really didn't like it i got about 250 pages in and realized that like um you know and this is already the catholic in me sort of trying to say this but it was the the reading was so protestant that i just really couldn't merge of it so i've purchased um books there's like a six volume history by a catholic author which will be correct um but church fathers i mean i've read the desert fathers i've got the early christian writings to read really i mean i could it's easier for me to look um so yeah i mean basically the entirety of c.s lewis's christian works i mean they're all fantastic i'm sort of indebted for lewis for my arrival in the faith in general um uh, or, you know, I've said before, my, my uh, literary arrival into Christianity was very eclectic. So there was Thomas Merton on one hand, who's, you know, a very spiritual, mystical Catholic um, with a seven-story mountain in his notebooks. And then on the other hand, there was um, Seraphim Rose, um, the author of well-known orthodox who wrote uh, Orthodoxy and Religion in the Future, and Nihilism. And Nihilism was like a key entry text into Christianity. I mean, if you're, if one of the reasons you might be looking at Christianity as this, as a, as this saving thing, which it is, um, and you're, you're disillusioned with the modern world and you're trying to find a conversation between these two, I mean, read Seraphim Rose's Nihilism. It's, it hits every nail on, on all their, all their heads, so to speak. Um, Bishop Barron's Catholicism was like my first real Catholic text. Um, I've been in, been reading a lot of Carmelite stuff at the moment, so Stein, John of the Cross. Just finished, just finished actually, just before coming on here. Uh, Saint Teresa of Lisieux. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Her story of the soul, which is very sweet. I didn't connect with it too well. I think there's probably a bit of a gap. It's a very, it's very female. Perhaps I'm wrong in that. Perhaps in time I'll find more in it. Um, then, then there was also. Gerard, Gerard was very big. There was also Sheed's Theology for Beginners, which is really great. Um, and I've got a ton to read. I mean, really for theology and for all this stuff at the moment, my primary focus is on the Catechism of the Catholic Church, as you can imagine, which is the, you know, scripture and tradition, and that covers tradition in a very big sense in terms of um, the RCIA process into the church. So you spend a lot of time with that. Um I'm sure other books will come up. So, next question. It's a really long one. My main philosophical sympathies are with the classical medieval tradition as synthesized by Aquinas. But like you, I'm also drawn to some of the continental thinkers, thinkers Heidegger and some of the German idealists especially. Foucault to some extent as well. That being said, later 20th century continental thought seems to have descended into self, a self-referential morass of meaningless drivel. 
what do you make of thinkers like Deleuze and the whole body without organs type of discourse? Do you think there's anything of substance underneath the impenetrable jargon, or is it just intentional obscurity that can mean whatever inanities midwits in the university system decide to read into it? Even if there is anything worthwhile underneath, is it even worth the effort to get to it, or has it been said in a better, clearer way by others? Well, the Christian in me immediately wants to say there's nothing new under the sun, and actually the more philosophy you read and the more history you read, you, you find that a lot of what new original philosophy is doing is a, is a nuanced, uh, unique way of retelling a story which has been told throughout history in different contexts and different times. And I think, I think in this term, philosophy for me in a certain sense is almost like René Guénon's uh, appreciation of tradition in the sense that the root of tradition and the species of tradition is always the same. But every cycle, of course, the flower has to grow within the context of the soil and the sun and the atmosphere, and etc., etc., right? So the tradition's always the same, but the flowers and the leaves of that year are going to be different. So, um, so with that, philosophy for me is like that. So in terms of that idea of has the, have, have these things been said clearer in better ways, often the case is with philosophy is to find your thinker, to find that person who you know makes it click for you and tells the story in the way which works for you. Some people might not agree with that reading of philosophy, fair enough. Um, but there's a lot of questions in this. So what do I make of like the Deleuze body without organs discourse? I still, you know, I still really love uh, capitalism and schizophrenia and I love, I mean, I spoke to um, someone today, Ashley Woodward, about his book on Lyotard, nihilism and information and it, you know, I, that stuff's so exciting, it really is. Um, but you can get really burnt out on it, as you say, there is there is a ton of jargon and probably, well, I say, this all begins perhaps not as full on, but begins sort of post-Nietzsche you begin to see this stuff you begin to see this and the way i would really clarify it because i've thought about this question a lot is that what begins to happen is the 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 sort of if there's two trails which is the amount of ideas being produced and the amount of connections they're actually making to the world and how they can actually be used they get out of sync so it used to be that the, there would be a very practical philosophy which didn't use many ideas and wanted to change the world with like one idea, right? utilitarianism, for instance, like the greatest good. And then that's sort of become unbalanced in the, in the fact that like you look at a text like Anti-Oedipus or A Thousand Plateaus and there's a thousand, a thousand ideas in there but and they're all super, super interesting and exciting and radical and like explosive. But you also think at the same time, I don't really know how to use these. And... The, the trajectory of philosophy from sort of Nietzsche onwards has been more and more and more and more ideas um, but less utilisation and of course I don't want to like subsume everything into like well how do you use that practically but but um, you know I'm, I do have a sort of a, an emphasis on that in my own life which is sort of why I quite like Stein as well um, whether or not there's any truth to the fact it's something for the university system to read into it's very difficult to say because the university system quotation marks i don't know exactly what that is i mean i say the academy a lot and everyone like modernity or like all these other things a lot of people agree with whatever we mean when we say the academy but um you know it's it's, it's difficult i mean uh, my 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 contention my problem with these sort of ideas would be i think it's super fun it's completely fine and obviously fine for philosophy to do that to go you know just to be explosive and to have a thousand a million ideas and you know to be radical but the point 
when it's trying to make out as if it's doing something more or uh, you know that's when it becomes a bit more or, or you know they want to use these these very free floating terms in a way which alters uh, realities which could, could be quite harmful in a way well then then you've got a problem and it needs to be looked into but there you go um, there's not much of a not much of an answer there because the university system ironically of course relies on the deconstruction which it seeks to teach but if it was taught properly it would actually undermine the university system itself so they're always in this double bind of um, how far can they actually go with teaching postmodernism or deconstruction because ultimately to to practically teach that to its terminal point is to undermine the very foundations which give them a paycheck so you know it's unfortunate but not everyone's like that not everyone's deconstructionist and i do think i do from what i've seen and all the academics i've spoken to philosophy courses actually seem to be becoming more and more diverse we've sort of we are slowly moving away actually from the marx freud superhighway uh the levinas heidegger uh, emphasis in the continental tradition um of course you know certain thinkers are going dis- to disagree with the idea of them being called philosophy courses at all because they don't include eastern philosophy um but uh and, and, and that's a big question in itself um yeah but that's my answer for that one i think for now uh someone asks will you ever speak to nick land again um so i i added him on twitter a while ago when i finished the the third philosophy of bitcoin talk and i was originally going to do a fourth but actually i found i'd be repeating myself too much and i said could you do you want to come on hermetics again and talk about it and he said he'll do he'll come on when it when he's finished uh so I don't know. It, Nick, if you're watching, which you probably aren't, then please come on Hermetics again. It would be great to talk to you again. Um, the, the I do have a file on my computer when we tried to record something about horror, but the internet wasn't very good on the day, and all I've got is a recording of Nick saying the words, I like Yule, as in Yuletide season, uh, and that's all that is discernible from that. I'm not, I'm not releasing that. Um, yeah. A lot of people have been asking this next one a lot a uh, lot lately. How many hours a day do I typically spend reading? It does vary, but on average, four or five. So I spend, but a lot of so a lot of people see the amount of books that I get through, or the amount of books that I've read, or the amount of reading I do, and they're like, "How? How?" And I sort of say to them, well, "That's my job, right? Like, if you think about your job, and you 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 had to read for a living, then you would also." get that amount of reading done that's just how it is and it isn't always enjoyable to be honest um but it but it is split i usually i actually follow schopenhauer you know i really good really good thing to do if you're looking how to structure your day is basically look to the thinkers you you quite admire and see how they did it and i look to schopenhauer who started his day with i don't start my day with a coffee and a bath but he started about about seven and he made sure to do the sort of strenuous heavy philosophical reading like for instance if i'm reading something like i've got simon don's uh, individuation in lights of notion and form and information to read and i've also got facing gaia by bruno latour to read and these are quite heavy you know genuinely philosophical texts these kind of things i'll read in the early hours of of the day because it, it that's the best time usually your brain's your your brain or you is 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 too intellectually tired by about 5 p.m and um I can see the questions in the chat, so I'll get to them. And and you, you don't want to. So I do about two two hours then. And then I may, may, may do another hour throughout the day. And then I usually do possibly some podcast reading um, in bed. 
if it's a bit lighter. So, for instance, I had a, recently had a, a biography of Rudolf Steiner to read, which was fairly light, and it was quite an enjoyable read, so I'll read that. But if not, that's when I'll do my personal reading, which is generally floats between three topics, which is usually have a Gurdjieff book to read. At the moment, it's Gurdjieff, Master in Life by Czyslaw Czukonowicz, Polish name. Uh, and then I'll have like a spiritual book as well. And then I might, I usually try read a part of the Catechism every day at the moment as well. Um, as for scripture, I have, you know, quite relaxed on that at the moment because scripture is so um, spiritually dense in obviously a positive way that to say like, oh, I've read the Bible. I, you know, you, you, you've never read the Bible really, have you? You've, You've never finished it. You've never, oh, I've finally got to the last page. I'm done with the Bible now. Like, oh, I get it. You know, for instance, you could you could spend a lifetime simply studying the Gospel of of, of John, you know, um, or the Gospel of Matthew. And, you know, there are people who've, who've, who've written literally like, I think it's Adrian von Speer who's written four volumes on John. Um, yeah. So, but that's how much time I spend reading. And the weekends I spend... Sundays are Sundays are usually mark out some time to spend reading Christian stuff and RCIA stuff for the for the process to enter the church and weekends I'll spend a lot more time as well um, uh, I will just I'll cover a few things in the chat before they move on too far um, so someone says uh, thanks for the donation declaration uh, where does sovereignty lie uh, personally, for me, sovereignty. I mean, if you're talking to personal, so I do sort of somewhat believe in the idea of the sovereign individual. Um, so I would say a lot of sovereignty is with the self in that sort of Jung, Jungerian, Jungarian view of you know what you find in Homageville of this person who's detached. I do think there is still a a place for personal individual sovereignty in this world um you know and that can be uh, you know you can st I, it sounds ironic but i think you can still be a sovereign individual even if there's a being a boot trampling on you it's whether or not your internal life is still targeted towards the principles which you've attempted to uphold as long as you can um as long as you don't bow down and hand in the towel internally uh, you know lower the drawbridge of your interior castle then I think the sovereign, you know, the sovereign individual is there. Um, what have we got on here? Um, someone says, first time seeing me. There is a lot of video stuff with me now there. Um, what do I think of Advaita Neo Advaita? I don't think I'm pronouncing that. Uh, I don't know anything about it, unfortunately, so I'm sorry about that. Uh, someone says, without love, nothing can be sanctified. I mean... Yeah, I'm in complete agreement because uh, Edith Stein, you know, one of the probably her most famous quote is that, um, you know, they're basically to paraphrase, there can't be truth without love and there can't be love without without truth. Um, uh, and we see this really in the, you know, the tales of the Pharisees of this idea of not doing anything, even if it would be the good thing to do because it's because there's... Um, a, a, a certain truth which is to be upheld right that that things aren't enacted on the sabbath that the work that isn't taking place on the sabbath um and so the pharisees abide by truth with a like with this lower t truth they abide by it to the letter you know it's like and 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 almost pull the shutters down to push away all the good that could possibly happen 
and um, in doing so they're basically taking truth without the good and of course the good does happen there and the Pharisees are an exact example of this that that, that, that you have to there always has to be love and that has to come first but with the with the same dynamic you can't have the one without the other um otherwise you're entering into either sort of um possibly totalitarian relationship with truth where oh i can't do that even though i know it's the right thing to do but also doing the right thing even though you may have some knowledge in terms of you know uh, tradition um yeah what do i think of the metaphysics of eros um, I don't know if that's a text. I mean, uh, if you're talking sort of about Ludwig Klager's cosmogonic Eros, I thought it was an extremely exciting text. Of course, uh, I, I sold it for the reason that I can't... It's a bit dubious sovereign. Someone says sovereignty lies with God. That's sort of obvious, but I was thinking more of sovereignty in a specific sense, but yeah. Uh, the metaphysics of Eros, I mean, I had the... Obviously, Klager's is fantastic, but now Klager's is somewhat... Uh, Clark uh, uh, is somewhat a problematic thinker for me now because I do I do quite adore his work. It's extremely, extremely unique. Extremely, um, I you know I love philosophers who actually aren't afraid to to go in with really great prose. And 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 Klager's is a fantastic writer, a fantastic writer. Supposedly, from what I've heard from Paul Bishop, actually, a, a, a absolutely horrible to translate. You know, one of real real difficulty. A real plays around with a lot of. Uh, different forms of German I believe um, but yeah he's such a great writer so but in terms of Eros I don't know I'm I'm, I'm uh, on the 21st I'm recording an episode on Eros and Magic on the in the Renaissance by uh, Juan Piculiano who many of you know with Maurizio and so that would be interesting there'd be more about Eros there um, so James Mullen says what's the most exhausting text I've ever read I can only do Heidegger for a few hours in one sitting. Most exhausting text I've ever read. I'm currently, to be fair, it's not even the primary... Uh, let me look at my shelves. Difference and Repetition by Deleuze was very difficult. That was exhausting, most definitely. Um, some of Heidegger was definitely exhausting. Um, I tried, I got about a quarter of a way through being a nothingness before I realised I wasn't getting too much out of it. Um, I, I, I don't want to say Kant was exhausting, because actually... Once Kant clicks, you don't really get exhausted, but you just have a lot to to really process and work with. And Kant's very straightforward. I also don't think Kant's a bad writer. Uh, so, yeah. Um, but what I was going to... Oh, there is a book by Hubert Dreyfus and Paul Rabineau on Michel Foucault to do with uh, hermeneutics, which is I found very dry, very exhausting. Kant's logic, actually, was, was quite exhausting. Um, but the one I'm going to mention is all the times that I've come across Husserl. And I'm reading a secondary book on Husserl in preparation for some talks that I want to give on Edith Stein's philosophy. And Husserl is is uh, just not impenetrable, but you know, a real line by liner, just slow going. Even in this second book by Dermot Moran, um, uh, yeah. So that's probably the most exhausting uh, that I'd go with. Uh, what's what's my opinion of Land's slash Spinoza's philosophy? I don't think this is the problem. I want to ask our Land and Spinoza alike. I don't know. I don't know Spinoza, or are you just saying two separate ones? Um, right. The, you've you've asked a second question, which is easy for me to answer. That are you Christian? Yes, specifically Catholic catcherman. 
coming to hopefully you know a catholic uh what's my opinion on land spinoza's philosophy well obviously i've written a book on land's philosophy so i i, I still adore land's philosophy and always will I, th- I think he's just just so much fun is, is how i describe it it's just so much fun and it really drew me into philosophy it you know it it was an absolute flame that never went out and never will and i'd like to return at some point maybe to do some talks on fang new mena but i always tried quite hard to not constrain land's philosophy because it's just something you sit down with at 3 a.m in a, with a fever and you just go into it and it's absolutely you know this this you know they they who someone famously said that emil choron was the last nietzschean and heidegger said that actually Junger was the last nietzschean um but in that vein of that that real radicality and acceleration accelerative push to to see what how we can blister philosophy at the edges you know land land is definitely there or was there i, I you know uh, in those early books um someone says am i that one guy who asks all the questions in my rcia class oh undoubtedly of course but but you know for one reason because um yeah i won't name him but the the, the priest my, my priest is has such a depth of experience that asking him questions is is you know to have that that sort of wisdom like at genuine wisdom in front of me um is far far greater than being told to go read a text you know rcia for beginners or catholicism for beginners you know to actually be able to sort of delve into this this lifetime of faith and belief is you know, so and i want to savor that opportunity while i have it you know while you know at the moment it's mandatory for me to go to these classes every every however long so you know i'm going to take 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 him up while that's an opportunity for me um who are the thinkers that you think are impressive and influential yet when together they would not make any actually good and productive conversations assuming they understand each other um i you know i i enjoy the hermetics question um but actually a lot of philosophers really do fall into the same camp of probably wanting to be left alone or just wanting to stick to their own. So, you know, a lot of philosophers are impressive, but you, you have a few problems. One is that actually a lot of philosophers are writers. So I've had a few people turn down interviews for the mere fact they say, I'm, I'm a writer, you know, I, I can't talk about these things. You know, they, they might have tried and they just, they just, it's not something they can do. And I think the same is probably true for a lot of philosophers that to have a conversation with them wouldn't be the same as allowing them to sit down and think about writing about something, you know, for instance. Um, it's great when they can, a lot of them can, but I think you put a lot of philosophers in a room together, what would happen is either a sort of meltdown where everyone just goes quiet, or you'd be surprised that they just talk about regular day things because maybe they... <laughs> they'd be smart enough to think oh something's going on so they wouldn't want to um as for productive conversations i don't know how productive any conversation would be between philosophers because there's the i think the most productive ones would be between philosophers who have absolutely glaring differences those are generally the most productive conversations because they know that they're at such an impasse that they, they're they happy to just let the guard down and just talk because the other might not, you know, uh, maybe not Hegel and Schopenhauer. I mean, that would just be a fight and Schopenhauer would win. But maybe not them. But for instance, if you take two people who agree on 95% of their work, but they have that 5% difference, they're far more likely to just have a very unproductive, you know, debate where it turns into ad hominem. So... Yeah, I don't. You know, there's there's 
there's only so many there's yeah i mean whether or not these any of these rooms hermetics rooms would be productive who who can tell um oh turn down the music volume there you go um, how do you reconcile the Catholic Church's prohibitions on magic and certain spiritual practices with hermeticism or personal spiritual magic, magic practice? Um, there's a question coming up about this. It's actually next. So someone someone did ask, um, do you find it difficult to reconcile the fourth way in Christianity or does it come naturally? So right, I'll, I'll sort of start with yours and then move into what the fourth way is. So reconciling the prohibitions and personal spiritual magic practice. As far as I'm concerned, with the experience that I've had of what one might consider magical practice or whatever, um, most of that isn't good for you and it's prohibited for a good reason. Secondly, and I don't want to conflate the two in saying that they're the same thing because they're not, but when people sort of think that you're suddenly becoming confined by some sort of um doctrine or dogma which are, yeah you are in the catholic church but there, there, there's not going to be any outlets for for mysticism or spirituality then that's completely untrue and, and, and if you if you are of that court that sort of calling of a mystical calling there's obviously avenues for that in 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 denominations so you can certainly find that but of course you know i do i don't want to say the word practice because it isn't a practice really you know i do follow the the guidance of Gurdjieff and the fourth way but that that's more psychology than it is practice there's no ritual there's no there's no sigils there's no ceremonious magic or anything like that with that um there is obviously the you know for instance just to take one example because I was thinking about this question a lot to take one example Gurdjieff for instance doesn't believe that well didn't believe um that human beings have souls he he believed that humans had to earn their soul and if they died you know obviously then the question would be well what happens if a human without a soul dies they they just die like in the atheist fashion they just become worm food you know you do what Gurdjieff would say you die like you die like a dog right die like a dirty dog um, are you going to die like a dog or are you going to earn your soul and I like the idea of earning a soul I do like that idea um, but but the thing is for me to say well no I just don't agree with Gurdjieff on that fact, on that matter, that no, everyone does have a soul, um, doesn't doesn't it doesn't tamper with the practice of the fourth way, which is genuinely helpful for for life. You know, to do with self observation and self self remembering and these practices, and they're not. I don't see them as nefarious, and there is a very there is a clear. There's many Catholic lines within the fourth way. So, for instance, Uspensky was obviously sort of Gurdjieff's right-hand man for a long time, who then wrote In Search of the Miraculous and was doing his own thing. Supposedly, he sort of drifted towards a more Catholic outlook in his later days. Um, this may have come from his student, Rodney Collin, who was definitely, you know, trying to combine the two and, and found them completely compatible. Um, and J.G. Bennett, uh, one of the more famous Gajifian pupils he converted to Catholicism in his later years Catherine Holm after Gurdjieff passed away also converted to Catholicism there's a lot of them and I think I think really it is it is compatible and really what Gurdjieff is for many for me for me I'll only speak for myself but I think what Gurdjieff really had managed to do is synthesize a mass of fragmented and helpful and beneficial mystical currents 
and traditions which could really help someone develop and put them into a unified system which still made sense but actually didn't hone people in and didn't capture them and that's all it is it's a very helpful and of course you can find these things elsewhere but they're so spread out that they'd be difficult to find all the different things that he's commenting on so um here we go um have i done a podcast on the metaphysics of money finance economics if not would you consider doing one in the near future so i've done a podcast with old biao which is o-l-e space b-j-e-r-g on the ontology of capitalism which might interest you and i've also done three talks on nick land's philosophy of bitcoin um and yeah those those are the ones i've done right so um but i what i really want to do is just continue and i've also done talks on carl menger's um economics the book which really started off the austrian school because the austrian school of economics really really interests me and i do want to continue doing them and i've got uh jugend von bombaum marks uh capital and interest to begin and do lectures on so yeah so there'll be more of that stuff but i've got so many threads of things i want to tackle that it's tough aren't you concerned about working with a someone asks aren't, aren't i concerned about con- working with a crypto related project in the times when the crypto industry is such dreadful environmental impact well, I do. I do have an answer for this, actually, um, which which people have yet to really address. The ultimately, we live we live in a we live in a state where everything everything has to have a payoff. Everything has to have its that you know. For instance, if I want a TV, then I get a TV, and that's great. Um, but ultimately, that does have to have this resource and economic payoff, and you know that means some destruction somewhere. Everything in life, there's no such thing as a free lunch, as Robert Heinlein would say, right? There is no such thing as a free lunch. Like everything has that thing. So the question isn't, I don't think, um, and really, I take, took this from a talk with a guy called Bill Ottman, who's the CEO of Minds.com, and I thought it was a great way to think about it. He said, really, the question isn't isn't to think about. Well, okay, because you see all these articles, Bitcoin and blah, blah, blah. Bitcoin crypto is having a dreadful environmental impact. The question really should be is, is the environmental impact that Bitcoin is having worth the, the worth what it gives us? And I would put that into perspective in terms of saying that I personally believe and I imagine that, that, that there's a deep irony and contradiction in the fact that the same people who would talk about you know the, the the modern brilliance of banking and central banking are the same people who would in the same breath also talk about the brilliance of modern automation and ai and yet they've never considered to branch the two and i think that's simply because i don't really know why right of all the things in the world banking is the first thing that could easily easily be automated especially all the tellers and banks so one could say yeah okay bitcoin has this dreadful environmental impact but what bitcoin is trying to replace is the centralized banking system which is dreadful uh, which steals your money which um and and has a 10 to 1 ratio of creating debt right what bitcoin seeks to replace is the centralized banking system which equally has a ginormous catastrophic uh, environmental impact it has banks everywhere physical banks which literally aren't needed anymore with people driving to and fro and all this kind of stuff which aren't needed anymore that whole thing could be digitalized and yet they refuse to do it and bitcoin on the other hand which 
is seeking to solve this problem of the energy problem that it's creating which and, and and actually is trying to genuinely seek it if it was to replace the system of centralized banking would have a far less detrimental effect on the environment than the entire centralized banking system so once again it's that question of okay well we, these things are here now what um what's going to be the payoff right so that's my answer <laughs> um who are the most important sophists? Not the ones Plato was arguing with, but the derogatory sense. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I actually don't know. <laughs> Do you know Traden Lunot Telos Bound in his book, Apthesis? No, I don't, unfortunately. Uh, where can I find the podcast you did on Julius Avola? Uh, if you jump into the Discord, which there'll be links somewhere or someone can put one in here, uh, there is a link floating around for, for, for that uh, for that episode um, someone says any luck on getting hold of a Virilio scholar no I've, I've emailed three or four people some haven't all but one didn't reply and one just said that once again that same thing that they'd written books for the for the precise reason that they wanted it in writing and not speaking so you know and that's completely understandable and it, it, it's just so frustrating trying to find scholars or thinkers who want to talk about these people because I know they exist, right? They have to exist, otherwise there wouldn't be discussion of these thinkers at all. So they're out there, I just can't find them. And uh, that's a very frustrating thing because I just I want to make this content accessible for people. Um, ah, the big question from Nihilism is Dead, who also donated, so thanks very much. Why Catholicism instead of Eastern Orthodoxy? Um, once again, uh, faith is faith and you get, you, you. I have just an intuitive thing that Catholicism is right. Um, one thing I would say is that the what I've seen of the Orthodox and I'm really really reluctant to put them all in one boat here I really am but I'm going to have to do it is that there's a tendency it seems for them to be very prickly around matters of theology to the point of being very declarative in saying you're wrong, you're wrong you're getting it wrong instead of having that initial openness and then discussing it and so it seemed to me that the orthodox focus was first on the theology and then on christ and i know that's a ridiculous thing to say but that is the general attitude that i've come across and i wish no ill to anyone of the orthodox faith i think it's absolutely beautiful i think their aesthetics are beautiful and music's beautiful and you know Seraphim Rose was one of the guides into the faith for me. But um, Catholicism just seems right for me. And also, of course, with Eastern Orthodoxy, for me, there's always going to be that cultural divide. And for me, it was almost like I don't want to submit to Catholicism because it's almost like submitting to the Western father, for instance, right? You're like, oh, you know, I don't want... I, you, you still have that sort of radical energy where you don't want to give in and say, all right, you were right all along. And so you could do that thing of finding the 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 eastern alternative which is very mystical and allows you to sink into uh, a culture which isn't your own but uh, catholicism allows me basically to find a great aesthetic beauty in my own culture so that's that's what i'd say someone said um what do i think of charles taylor uh you might have to remind me who charles taylor is i know of the name but there you go um, someone said I really enjoyed your early chat with Nick Lamb would you consider doing a follow up um, 
yeah I mean if Nick's Nick's up for chatting then I'm always up for chatting but it's very hard to get him on I mean he has a life he has he has a family right so it's very difficult um do I have any interest in pseudo Dionysus's work uh I've heard the name yet to get around to it <laughs> what do I think of Judaism uh, it's such a huge question um yeah I, I don't know I don't know how to answer that because it's just such a massive question I've got no I've got obviously I would caveat that with I don't that's, uh, my reluctance to answer that doesn't mean I have a problem with it it's only that it's so all-encompassing that I wouldn't know where to start um and I don't I don't know enough about it really to comment in any way um what do I think of apotheosis uh I think I'm getting that right in the sense that that's the that's the eastern orthodox apotheosis is the eastern orthodox thing of of spiritual development someone might have to comment and um uh uh correct me on that when will i when will i study hebrew ancient or modern oh, i have to study latin first of course um so have i looked into valentin tomberg didn't valentin tomberg supposedly write uh meditations on the tarot and that's supposedly a catholic book as well mm. Uh, someone said, what's my favourite L. Ron Hubbard book? I I've never read any of L. Ron Hubbard's work, but I have, however, uh, finished a couple of weeks ago, Going Clear, that, that which was turned into a big documentary. And it's a fantastic read on Scientology. And um, it's the one thing I've always been reluctant to comment on on the podcast because I know they have eyes everywhere, right? But yeah, no, it was a great read, Going Clear. I'd recommend it to anyone. It's a real page turner, very fun and, and sheds light on it. But But ultimately, like, I'm I'm also still always in a way I have a sympathetic ear for people who because the word cult is it is easily applied and very very difficult to remove from things and of course it's obvious you know and I'm sort of talking from a Gurdjieffian stance I've recently also been reading uh, Gurdjieff in the Public Eye which is a collection of the newspaper articles about Gurdjieff Gurdjieff's time on earth you could say and there's not many in Constantinople in the early 1900s but then when he moves to the Priory in France you know you have this group of philosophers and mystics in the forest of Fontainebleau at the Priory um, obviously all you know in the Daily Mail in like 1920 something there's this you know forest cult led by Armenian mystic right and you know it's very easy to to do that to someone so I'm and I'm not saying either way about Scientology I'm just saying that um, you know that sort of thinking where you go right it's a cult ridicule every single aspect of it and, and deny any good that ever came of it I think that in itself is dangerous because then people who might have found some good from something which may at some point have been called a cult willy nilly um, it, it, it can be quite a nefarious way to think about things but Going Clear is still a great read and it also made me rewatch The Master by uh, director Paul Thomas Anderson, one of my favourite films, and it's just great. Read, you know, read Going Clear, and then go watch The Master, and it's it's really fantastic. Um, uh, does Catholicism have similar con concepts to Prelest? Uh, I, I couldn't tell you why. My reluctance to comment on these very specific religious questions is that I just don't know enough at the moment. Right, I'm I'm learning, and Pete, I don't, you know, I wrote about this in that three parts I wrote about my conversion process. Is that the irony is I went to a Church of England school, Protestant school, which had this very very minor focus on religious upbringing. Right, um, 
you'd sing a couple of hymns in assembly and then you'd say the our father the our father and you but you never got told what our father means you never got told what the hymns mean you never got actually taught anything and that led me away from to really you know in a sentence my you know my my story and my own story in terms of the prodigal son is that i was taught very unconsciously and very subtly though they you know none of this was intentional but i was taught because of a very relaxed attitude and a sort of throwing in christian bits here and there as didactic um lessons i was taught christianity was something which it completely wasn't so i went through my teens and into my early 20s basically with this mindset that christianity basically literally was something that it completely wasn't and i was badly taught it and it did a lot of damage and then you know i think you know reading certain things i mean the if you wanted a book where you if you'd say right what was the first of you know because edith stein she she suddenly sees teresa of teresa of avila's biography on the shelf and she reads that and the next day she goes out and gets a missile and their catechism and mine wasn't that drastic but I would say that book was Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. That was the first one where... And if you were to ask, well, why did I read that? Um, because I'd seen the way the world was going and I'd seen what Christianity supposedly said it had to offer from various people online. So I thought, well, I'll start somewhere. And that was the beginning and that was years ago now. Um, what are my favourite podcast guests, if any, on the philosophy of science related topics? Well, I've done a lot of really great podcasts on this um no i one thing which is you know you talk to any podcast host i don't get much time to i don't get much time at all to listen to podcasts unfortunately but i've done i did a good episode on bachelor i did a good episode with uh helon metzger with christina camiso i've also done a lot on michel Serre, who's philosophy of science um and slowly doing more and more latour and i've got um uh, an episode coming up with a guy called Sean Kelly on a book he wrote called Becoming Gaia, uh, which is also um, somewhat tangentially related to philosophy of science. What's my my favourite religious order? Um, the Carmelites. Absolutely. Carmelites, yeah. Dis- discalced Carmelites. Uh, St. John of the Cross and Edith Stein, of course. Um, favourite... <laughs> Great question. Favorite Protestant denomination? I would say like the the that sort of old Anglican which Tolkien was part of. I think there was a lot there actually, and I think I can you know I'd have some sympathies with that. Not that I have not that I've turned into like oh I have problems with all Protestantism or anything like this. Not at all. Not at all. But yeah, that. Uh, someone said, I haven't heard of Charles Taylor, giant Catholic philosopher from Canada. No, unfortunately, I haven't. I've heard the name, I've heard the name, so, but... Favourite 20th century Thomist. I'm slowly getting into, um... Uh... Uh... Gargou Lagrange. Lagrange. Um, I've got his four things, heaven, hell, death, and suffering, to, to read. Um... And I also really want to read his three... What's it called? Let me find it. Three Ages of the Interior Life. Um, so him so far. But F.J. Sheed's Theology for Beginners was a really great introduction. That's probably the best introduction. Uh, what my experience with evil when you're interested in occultism? Uh, once again, it's like secreta me and me here. Right? Secret belongs to me. I can't, I can't exactly explain it. It's not something I can say. 
oh, one day I did this thing and then bang, like <laughs> there was a demon in the corner. That's not how evil is, unfortunately. If it, we, you know, we, one would hope that evil was like that because if there was a demon in a corner, you'd avoid him, right? Well, you'd hope that people would. It's not how evil is, unfortunately. Evil's a, a nefarious uh, form or mimicry of spirit, which does tries to do the same thing, I would say. So it says, do I believe in the devil uh, as an actual fallen angel? Yes. There you go. Yeah, I do. Um, and the reason for my sort of belief in that sort of thing is is looking around the world. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, someone's just said the works of Francis Yates, question mark. Uh, I read, tried to read, oh, that was a very dense book, actually, the Hermetic Tradition book by Francis Yates. Very tough, very tough. Um, what led me away from Protestantism led me away from Catholicism. Oh, okay. Well, I'm not in the... I'm. This is the thing with these things. I'm not in the realm of trying to preach in the sense of converting others because I just... I'm one, I'm not there, theologically speaking, and, and what one finds for them, one finds for them. I'm, I'm not here to disregard God's will, really. Someone says, after Lagrange, you should check out Etienne Gilson and Jacques Martin. Yeah, Martin and Gilson are definitely... I read, when I did the episode on um, Converts to the Real, um, they they came up a lot in that book, and it's a really great book of Catholic history in um, terms of that philosophical tradition as well. Someone says, I really enjoy and respect the diversity of guests and philosophical views you investigate with the podcast. So I was a little disappointed with the Discord community. <laughs> Any plans for more moderation? Um, we, we, the Discord community has been running a long time and Discord communities are very difficult to keep active. And I don't ever... My moderation in the Discord has always been very, very minimal in the sense that I'm fine for people to say... Um, really what they want as long as it's not uh racist sexist and they're not allowed to post any um you know sexual content or anything like that um and there's also no like bullying so if there's something there that people disagree with because it might be like right wing or really left wing um then then that's not really up for me to moderate because who am i to say oh you're not you don't get to to say that um so, yeah, and I mean the Discord community is very, you know, it, it is what it is. But I, I, the, the 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 push for free speech in in certain directions to say like, oh, you go in. I mean, if you go in somewhere and ultimately you think, oh, I'm I'm not too comfortable in this place. Um, if there's no, I I knew usually I always say to people, if there's something that's been said in the Discord and you have a problem with it and it's genuinely like hurtful or uh, an attack then message me and I'll ban that person. I've banned many people. But ultimately, if it's um, uh, just because you disagree with the politics, then I'm not going to just say to people, all right, we can't talk about this um, anymore. So that that that's my answer on that. And I don't, I just not one for really moderating that type of thing. People have got their own views. Um, someone says, thoughts on perennialism. Um, I just still haven't read enough into it. I mean, I've read Getting On, and I've only really read one Getting On, uh, which was the, the Crisis of the Modern World, and um, I just have, once again, it's one of those things, I think someone asked this last time, and I just yet, have yet to um, 
read enough to, for me to make a proper comment. Someone says, have you ever done an episode... Oh, I'm guessing you you mean on, not and. Have you ever done an episode on Swedish artist uh, Ivan Agueli? And when I finished my chat with Abdul Hakim Marad, he actually said to me, someone I should think about doing an episode on is Ivan Agueli. And then he said... I'll try to find you someone and he couldn't find anyone so I've sort of been looking since um, but it, it's tough tough to tough to find people uh, someone says have I studied a lot of history um, I could tell you all about the history of the fourth way between the years of about 1890 and 1959 in an in immense detail um, <laughs> but I've read I, I, I enjoy reading about history but um just don't get too much time for it and uh well like like a typical sort of young western man like world war Two interests me and world war one interests me um and i've been reading like a history of the of, of england as a way to sort of um you know brush up on perhaps the and i'm interested in church history as well i've got this the, i think it's called the birth of christendom by is it someone farrell i think um come along um so other questions which aren't in the chat them oh someone do i read french i don't read french have i studied studied olivier ray no uh someone asked in the other questions what's my favorite monkey uh i i don't have one i don't have one sorry to say what is my current view of the natural sciences physics chemistry and biology one thing one thing that's a real weak spot for me in a way other than geography which anyone in here will tell you i'm dreadful at geography like like there's there is children with better geography than me i just can't do it never been able to i don't know why what is my current view of the natural sciences it's another weak spot that I don't do this thing that a lot of philosophers used to do, you know, back in the day, which is keep up with trends in the natural sciences. So some sometimes when I mention things like the Big Bang or things like this, I think, actually, this is probably outdated now. I mean, science is moving quite fast. Um, yeah, I, I don't... I would say that a book that overhauled my understanding of the natural sciences was... Gurdjieff's Theory of Hydrogens by Robin Bloor, um, which really made me realise how ahead of the curve Gurdjieff was in terms of these things. And there's plenty of things which in his day people were saying Gurdjieff was an a being. Um, yeah. Um, right, I'll move back to the other questions. Someone says, <laughs> do you cook? What do you eat? Yeah, I cook and I don't understand this I, that to me no offense to this person i'm sure it's an innocent question but the, the the question of do you cook is an absolute absurdity to me the idea that there's people who who grown adults at least i'm not saying that your children should have to cook their own meals or whatever but the idea that there's grown adults over the age of like 16 who literally don't have the ability to cook a basic meal and and genuinely i think there are many people who rely on going out and um you know eating out i mean that's madness to me so what i really eat to be honest very basic i eat and what i do at the start of the week i get a whole chicken i roast it and then i have i put that into meal prep tubs when it does about five or six meals and i have chicken with beans and rice 
like black-eyed beans with rice and then a little salad. I have that for dinner every day and I don't really eat too much at the moment. I recently came across this fantastic passage about the digestive theory of digestive juices from Gurdjieff and it's actually made given me a ton more energy. Um, and it's a theory which... Good, well, not a theory. I mean, it cured... So the story goes that this young Polish man... This young Polish man was being trained to be an athlete so his father was his father wanted him to be an athlete because he was a good genetics or whatever back in the day and so his father made him eat 20 eggs every morning and eat you know tons and tons of food and this this young young chap eventually was face was covered in spots he was getting ill he was actually uh, losing weight and getting thinner and he was like you know just exhausted and so this man meets Uspenski the the, the boy's father meets Uspensky and Uspensky doesn't know what to do so he says oh, I'll have to talk to Gurdjieff and Gurdjieff says right you you have to come stay with me you have to come stay with me um, and the father wasn't allowed anything to do with it for like a couple of months and Gurdjieff on the so this, this Gurdjieff says on the first night to the boy he says oh you like fried eggs he says yeah 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 and he says oh there'll be some in the morning and he's used to like 20 fried eggs a day so the boy comes down in the morning and before breakfast it's like 7am and he says, breakfast, breakfast. And he goes, oh, actually, before breakfast, we've got to do this, 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 and this. And when he's finished all these things, Gurdjieff just keeps pushing him, keeps pushing him to the point where this boy's like, by nine o'clock, this boy has already basically had a full day. Or, you know, he's like, Gurdjieff's like, right, move those rugs. Once you've done that, put up the put up the paintings, blah, blah, blah. And he's like exhausted. And he sits down and finally, he, um, he's given uh, one fried egg and a tiny sort of morsel of bread for his breakfast. And the days goes on and eventually this is all this boy is really eating is that for breakfast and then um, a small soup with bread and then occasionally might have something else or whatever. And eventually the boy, he, he, all the, his face clears up, he's full of energy, he doesn't need much sleep, you know, he's great. And he says, you know, what was happening? And Gurdjieff says to him that what was happening is the body, for instance, only produces, let's say, 10 amount of gastric juices. Um, if you are ingesting 10 things or let's say 10 amount of food these are obviously just ways to think about it then the relationship of gastric juices is one to one and that's enough then for the body to actually ingest the nutrients but if you're eating way 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 more you know 20 foods and then it's one to two and more and more and more and eventually the gastric juices are only just doing enough to break it down so it can actually move through they're not actually breaking it down so the nutrients can actually go into your bloodstream this is Gurdjieff's theory and eventually you know this boy boy goes home and he's all well again and I've I've really been trying to work off that basis of actually eating very small meals and fasting a fair amount so yeah, do I cook, do I eat? Yeah, I only really eat between about 2 and 8 p.m. And I eat very, very basic um, stuff. So maybe one day I'll join a monastery and they'll say, blimey, you know, you eat you eat more minimally than us. Um, but who knows? I very much doubt that. Um, uh, blimey, got loads of questions. Um, did I ever get hold of Bob Dobbs medicine? If so, did it work? I haven't done that yet. What I did instead, I did get some like high potency magnesium, but Bob was like, no, not that stuff. That's rubbish. Um, but magnesium, I just never found it did much to me. A lot of people go on about it. So apparently the thing with magnesium is that the micronutrients of magnesium. So a lot of people say that you should get enough magnesium from vegetables, but 
a lot of the data regarding the nutrient quality of vegetables hasn't been updated with regard to the micronutrients which is in the soil so actually even though originally if a carrot is grown organically and properly yes it would have x amount of magnesium in it but now but because we've riddled and ruined the soil with everything um there isn't that in it anymore so and no i didn't get hold of bob's medicine um so sorry about that what is the best diet for an occultist i mean the th- i mean it, you know one i don't really support occultism but the theories on this just to mention it are split uh someone like john michael greer would say that actually a lot of people shouldn't eat vegetarian diets on on a, if they're practicing that kind of thing because you start to get very woozy and wayward and he would always say to people that if they started to feel weird what they need is to to anchor themselves and to do that with a double bacon cheeseburger with fries right this really hearty thing and a lot of people Gurdjieff another Gurdjieffian theory I mean I'll just keep mentioning them is that for instance Gurdjieff would say that um, in terms it's, it's really related to this actually that if everything is on this scale of hydrogens and everything has a certain level of being then this is where the famous quote comes from Gurdjieff infamous not that well known I should say but he says that a baked potato is more intelligent than a raw potato and what he's saying is that as it's been baked the digestive properties of it and the nutrients is more uh, sort of amiable and easier to assimilate into our actual bloodstream as before and for this is why the reason Gurdjieff says that well actually for a lot of people a vegetarian diet isn't very good because you're getting all these you're taking all your nutrients from things which are very low down on the scale of being you know a carrot is under so many more laws than a lamb so if you eat meat you're ingesting something which is far more developed and so you're you're literally ingesting into your bloodstream something which is uh, uh, far higher on the on the scale of being um so yeah but don't practice occultism there you go do i still eat tuna straight from the can yeah i do actually if i want a quick snack i'll have a tuna from the tin uh and usually i'll sprinkle a bit of salt on top i still really enjoy it i think it's delicious um sometimes i might have that with like cucumber or something um how healthy have you been eating recently i was ill the last three weeks which is why i had to change this was meant to be a christmas stream but i was i was ill so but fairly healthy now i do eat small meals and meat veg and a brilliant salad from a good recipe of Gurdjieff's which I found which is fantastic it's the nicest most delicious salad I've ever ever tasted so uh, he sort of called it uh, salad but he also called the salad to cost the earth because everything goes into it Um, uh, I might give you the recipe if you're interested but it's fantastic Uh, so the same question twice once in the chat and once on the I think probably by the same person. They really want to know, why am I bald? Why am I bald? Um, genetics. Genetics. I could say something cool, like I shaved my head so that the the rays of light from the Lord are easier to get in. But no, it's just poor genetics. Um, I was balding. I'm, I'm happy. I'm, it's been to my, been to my benefit uh, in a way for certain amounts of pride, I think, in that... I dealt with something that a lot of men deal with at not a great time. So, for instance, I was balding and receding to the point where I had to shave it off at 19, right? And I was balding really from 17 onwards. Um, And at that age, it's far stranger. You just have to deal with it as if you, I don't know, just deal with this thing that life's given you. You think, oh, well, whatever. Um, But a lot of men, of course, would have to deal with this in the age where they've 
they've settled, they're securing themselves, right? They, they've got to maybe their mid-30s, they're financially stable, they've, you know, everything's sorted, and then all of a sudden they're dealt this sort of um, blow with how they look. So I just, I've been used to that. Um, oh, the question's there again. Thanks, guys. Uh, have I read Julius of uh, Evola? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did an episode on Evola with um, DC Miller a long time ago, which is is available if you go to the Discord. Uh, read Evola. Um, I think Evola is not a very good writer. I think uh, I think he's a bit of a plagiarist. I did enjoy Men Amongst the Ruins. Um, I did enjoy oh, I forgot the name of it, the biographical one that he wrote, which was given to me as the one to read. And I preferred his more, you know, polemical ones as opposed. I don't particularly like him when he starts tackling. You know, for instance, Revolt Against the Modern World, other than being a fantastic title, is this dense treatise on esotericism. I just didn't enjoy it, and I don't remember much from it. I just remember it being, you know, a a lot. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I don't mind him. I don't mind him. Would you consider doing more episodes on... But then I also I don't really I don't read Avola anymore I would say I haven't read him in a long time um, and I, maybe I need to spend more time with him but he, he's this sort of rightist fascination that people talk about right and they go read Avola and I I would say no read Joseph de Mest right read read Saint Peter's Burg Dialogues by de Mest you know uh, would you consider doing more episodes on Cormac McCarthy's work I'd love to do more episodes on Cormac McCarthy's work he's the one there's not many fiction writers that can really hold my attention anymore but McCarthy is just I mean undoubtedly a master a master of it I'd like yeah I'd like to do one just on southern gothic in McCarthy's work really um yeah but it's once again tough to find scholars I did email that other blood meridian scholar but he never got back to me um oh someone actually said earlier I think I missed it it's Thomas have I read Thomas Merton yeah I've read Thomas Merton I was saying about this earlier I've read um, the first notebooks volume and I've read Seven Story Mountain and Thomas Merton is so nice to to read he's a delight to read Thomas Merton he was one of he's the Catholic who led me to the faith and realised it could be something more than that didactic finger wagging Catholicism I'd been taught by every single media representation of Catholicism you know Catholicism is extremely open and mystical and beautiful and Merton really gets that in writing um thoughts uh, just uh, hang on oh there we go do I lift um I don't lift anymore I got to my lifts at one point, and this is when I stopped. So I was at, I weighed 75, 78 kilos. I could do a 110 bench, I could do a 120 squat, and I could do a 160 deadlift. And it got to the point where the effort in to effort out, like the effort in to the to the lift gains out, was just not worth my time, and also not worth the eating because you just have to eat and eat and eat. And I didn't really like the aspect of it. So then I moved to a very basic lift, and now I just sort of do basic resistance training with like some body weight exercises thrown in three or four times a week um obviously not recently because i've been ill just curious have you ever had any guests on that you really strongly disagreed with throughout the interview i've had a lot of guests on that i disagreed with uh people seem to think that because i have someone on or because i'm reading something i agree with it which is really really dumb um 
you know, I'm not saying you're dumb, but I really, really dislike that because I think that attitude has disallowed the academy to really open itself to a lot of views. You know, for instance, just because someone teaches a course, for instance, on Spengler or someone teaches a course on, uh, let's say, Demest or, or Evola, as we were saying, it doesn't. It shouldn't mean that they agree with them. Some you can be really, really interested in someone's work without agreeing with every single facet of it, and also you can be interested with it without agreeing with it at all. For instance, I just had John Zerzan on. I really like John Zerzan. He's a great guy. Primitivism and anarcho-primitivism genuinely just interests me. Am I a primitivist? No. I'm sat here in a very comfortable flat, and I, I, um, acknowledge that that I probably wouldn't want to go back to that. And I'm more on the sort of Greerian middle ground where actually, no, I think there is a certain amount of technology which is very good. You know, I'm really, really thankful that when I go to the dentist, I can get to have a a very well quantified injection in my gum, which is basically painless, as opposed to just huffing on some ether and you might just die because someone's not been able to measure it, you know. Um, so, yeah, there's there's the, a lot of the guests that I've had on I disagree with. Um, but I've never I've never had anyone on to I've disagreed with to the point of saying, like, you know, right, I can't. And ultimately, I think if that happened, I would say, no, no. You know, I think I remember with... No, no, there's, there hasn't really been anyone who... But but I, I don't agree with them. Sometimes it's like, I'm just interested in this idea. I don't follow it through in my daily life with, you know, a passion. Thoughts on Jesus. Um, the greatest. The greatest guy. My favourite Jesus moment. I mean, my, you know, I don't really know how to answer that question because once again, that's all encompassing. But my favourite moment of Jesus is um, the forgiveness of, of uh, Peter in the temple. You know, his best friend, his closest, um, I might have mixed this up. But anyway, just the forgiveness. I think I have mixed that up, which is really bad. I was trying to figure out if it was Peter or Paul. That's awful. Um, because it's, it's the key Catholic, and this is live. It's the key Catholic section. It's in Matthew. To you, I give these the keys. I hope someone can tell me who that is, and then I'll continue with what I was saying. Anyway, would I ever have Alex Jones on? No, just because it's just it doesn't the crossover's not big enough, and I don't, you know, uh, you know, Alex is fun or whatever, but it's not the attention that I want. Um, someone said their favourite catchphrase is "right, right." Well, that seems like a good place to wrap this up. Yeah, I probably need to come up, come up with something new. Someone, yeah, Cyber's come in for me there. And I thought it was. It's St. Peter. So with Jesus, the best moment, my favourite moment, is, and it's the moment of pure forgiveness in the Bible, is Peter in the temple denying Jesus three times. And Jesus knows, he knows that his closest friend, his closest ally, the apostle who is given his keys, you know, all the entire legacy, he knows before it even happens, that this man is going to deny him. He knows that when he gives him the keys. He knows the whole thing. And yet he still denies him. He still forgives him. And he still hands over the keys of the kingdom to him in a, in a, in a, in an act of pure forgiveness. And that is a that is possibly my favourite passage of the Gospels in a way. Because it's, it's just fantastic. Um... It's, someone said this is Christmas stream. It's Christmas Eve here in the Julian calendar. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's orthodox people coming in. People are talking about um, different 
meals now. Do I? <laughs> someone said, "Do I follow a particular religion?" Um, yeah, I follow Catholicism. Becoming a Catholic. Um, favorite political theorist. If you were to include Junger, Ernst Junger, um, James Burnham is great. James Burnham is fantastic. I learned a lot from you know uh, uh, on Moldbug's recommendation, of course. But the Machiavellians by James Burnham. Um, fantastic. Um, yeah. Have I read Pinheads and Patriots by Bill O'Reilly? I haven't. If you had to had a small pile of books, like a backpack full, you could preserve during and after a collapse, what would you take? I the so right at the bottom of that backpack would be Travis J. J. I. Kokoran's homesteading books. Those two huge volumes, which I've yet to get my hands on, but two things which could basically as i understand it you 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 could start a homestead and and you know you could homestead from those two books alone so you're going to want them Uh, you'd obviously there'd be a bible in there um i would also put uh beelzebub's tales to his grandson by gurdjieff which is my other big long read um and then maybe a few works of mysticism i'd want things that i could dip into i mean maybe if i was to put a fiction book in there i'd want something like um blood meridian you know something that's so utterly beautiful that you um you could just go into it again and again and again um someone said my my episode with joseph azizi led led them to revisit christianity and they said thank you well thanks very much and um makes me very happy um oh that was the donation that question as well um thanks for the donation um yeah all right i'll answer that a bit more in depth then as for the book, so yeah, I mean, if you practical practical things aside, I mean, it's the question of desert island books. Maybe I'll limit myself to five, for instance. So if we say the Bible, um, Beelzebub's Tales to His Grandson by Jia Gurdjieff, because um, because it's just absolutely, you know, it's a lifetime's work to to attend to that. Um, maybe like a huge reference work of the history of philosophy, but that's a bit useless. Um, I'd want really maybe the Red Book by Jung, things like that that I could just pick at and pick at and pick at and read a sentence and and think about just for for life, you know. Um, yeah. Um, uh, do do do. What do you think about interviewing Peter Kingsley? I I emailed Peter Kingsley. Um, uh, regarding Catafalque and he's no longer he's not not doing uh, he's not doing interviews at the moment unfortunately but they said they'd get back in touch um, when when he is or if he does uh, opinion on Goethe uh, someone actually asked me to do an episode on Goethe and I've read the mm, forgot the name of it story of young Werther Worther, however it's pronounced. Didn't think much of it, unfortunately. Uh, but a lot of people said that he changes a lot. I, I don't know much about Goethe outside of that. Have I read Alistair McIntyre's book on Edith Stein? No, it's on my to-read list. And I will uh, I'll get round to get round to it. I've got um, after after Virtue, you know, the, the famous Alistair McIntyre to get through first. Um, what do I what do I think of Sean Hannity's recent book, Live Free? Or die, America in the brink. I haven't read it, unfortunately. Um, uh, cool. Right, that's the questions in the chat for now. 
What is the reason I made the Hermetics question a staple of the podcast? Yeah, big news on this, actually. Big news. Big news. Uh, so the reason the Hermetics question... The Hermetics question originally was when I was not super confident or, or uh, skilled as, as an interviewer as I have become from doing hundreds and hundreds of interviews. Um, was a way to open up the conversation to basically make... To, to, to allow you to see who the guest's interested in and see who they're, you know, who's tugging their strings and who they're super interested in and also just open it up. But as time's gone on, I've realised that sometimes that question's like, they'll just say three thinkers and then it's like, okay, that was almost pointless. Sometimes it's like three thinkers and we're 15 minutes in and we haven't got to the reason you clicked. So it's a decision a decision I'm still umming and ahhing about, but the chances are in the in the coming interviews after the next month because the next ones the recent ones I've recorded still have it I probably am going to remove the hermetics question um, because I don't I think now that I'm more comfortable in just going straight into it um, it's no longer really needed unfortunately um, and someone said is the construction of rooms and dialogues between thinkers a part of your own philosophical method I mean it's something I always think about and I've said this before that actually the way I the way I organize my bookshelf is that i well one way i sort of thematically do it so you have continentals and then maybe like younger and conservative revolution and stuff like that i do it like that but i also make sure i never put authors next to each other who i know wouldn't get on because i feel it's a real um you know travesty for their for their legacy for me to put them next to someone they hated and i always think that it is an interesting idea this idea of thinkers meeting meeting people but there you go um have I ever considered inviting two guests with opposing views and have them debate each other on the show, me being the facilitator? I've thought about this, and it very quickly, I just thought, no, I really don't want to do this. Um, I think I think the, the format of debate has basically been ruined and uh, has had its day. Um, as far as I can see from a lot of online stuff, most debates end in ad hominem and they end up in arguments and not debates because the problem is it's getting two people who are mature enough to enter into a debate with that openness beforehand to say like well maybe this person will actually change my mind but in my lifetime which you know so far is quite short um i've yet to see many people who have been won over by a debate uh so if that's the purpose of it no i if if, if i was to invite two people on just to have a discussion um sure it's very difficult it's quite a difficult thing to to chat with three of you in a way with one facilitating um it's sometimes quite tough um how many books do i have total uh about in march of this year i sold uh, i sold and i know the weight because i had to weigh them to sell to this company because i was i so what you can see i'll actually i'll stretch this just for this what you can see here and that last shelf is the last shelf. What you can see, I had this and another half of it um, in uh, March of last year. And I sold about 220 kilos of books um, because it was just, it was stupid. It was stupid. Like my, my room quite literally was, there was nowhere any longer practical to put them they're just stacks and stacks on the floor um this is one of the reasons i really really wanted this apartment is because of those books and the fact it's near the you know near the sea um because of the bookshelf how many do i have i don't actually know um you know 
one day maybe they'll um maybe i'll really minimalize down i did the thing is i mean not long ago i think it was about a year or two ago i minimalized down to maybe like two of these shelves and the thing is i mean if you think in a year for hermetics i produce at least 120 things 120 i'd say roughly um no maybe maybe less about 100 but i mean that's let's say 70 books already which which is a you know is a shelf um so that's quite quick and then there's my own reading and i do love to read that's my main hobby is reading so it, yeah but i have a lot basically and i also have uh down there uh a whole smaller shelf all just for Gurdjieff stuff because I've got so many Gurdjieff books and there's a stack of Gurdjieff books next to it um, which because I just have so much uh, on him um, would I ever consider getting uh, ever having Michael Lowry on your show to talk about Kabbalah and anarchism someone links me his stuff then I'm always up for you know seeing whether or not a guest would be a good good fit I'm always open to that yeah um what lesson has life taught you the most? What lesson has life taught me the most? When I the best lesson I've ever been taught before I get to life lessons. The best lesson I was ever taught was by my uh I I've been lucky in the sense that I don't really believe most modern British education at least is very good at all. It's reliant on tutors and teachers and that's more happenstance. And my luck in life has really come from falling in falling in with great tutors just just happened to and my art tutor in college i mean i only studied art in college but my art tutor in college one of the first things he used to say was don't tell me what you're going to do show me what you've done which is a real hard lesson for this you know current generations to say don't tell me what you're going to do. Show me what we've done. Everyone's got these, you know, it's akin to the road, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? Um, you either do it or you don't basically. And I think, um, I'm trying to think of his name, the famous scientist that everyone, uh, Richard Feynman says something along the same lines. He says, there is no could, there's only can, right? Um, so yeah, as for life itself, um, the uh, the one I mean really this comes from Gurdjieff but I mean it's just that no amount of self indulgence and negative emotions changes a thing it just makes makes things worse and basically the hardest lesson to learn is that a good ninety five to ninety nine in most points in life a hundred percent of people's misery is misery they've brought about by their own development or creation of what that misery is um yeah people bring about their own misery and it's very difficult to unlearn that so yeah um uh, the next question is why did you choose edith stein to be your patron saint once again as edith says secreta mia mihi which is that's this secret belongs to me um the thing with picking your confirmation saints it seems as i've been looking into it and looking into people's experiences with it is that it's very personal in the sense that um, saints almost just come to you. Of course, there's practical reasons for Stein, for myself. Her, her being, as I understand it, maybe the only saint in 
the continental tradition in continental philosophy and my own background in continental philosophy i just felt some connection there but edith stein's memory and i've got that the 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 talk on the life of edith stein coming out on this sunday 5 p.m but the 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 memory of edith stein is really the memory of a, a light in the darkness but it's a light i would say which really did understand that it wasn't going to win and uh, quite pessimistically, I guess, but optimistic in the same sentence is that idea of attempting to do some good, even though you know it probably you're not going to beat anyone, you're not going to win, is really how I feel a lot of movements, traditional movements, religious movements, feel in this era at the moment that against the behemoth of, you know, globalist consumer capitalism that really the fight's already lost but the thing is just to 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 battle it anyway so that's really why stein and i love stein's writing and her biography spoke to me um you know a lot there's something there's a lot in there i mean it's very simple biography but yeah um the next question is is the abiotic petroleum origin theory at all persuasive in your opinion i is this the one where it sort of the petroleum re rebuild or whatever and it isn't actually to do with fossil fuels or anything i don't know it all too well um if that theory well i mean uh, uh, whether or not it's persuasive doesn't matter we'll see if that theory is true then surely we'll then the petroleum i don't know will just be there but as far as i'm concerned and we're not seeing that so yeah um someone actually asked the most important question that's been asked uh so far so sorry to everyone else who's asked a question but this is by far the most important. Why do I think snooker is not more popular outside of the British Isles? Well, the thing is, snooker is the, uh, it's a game for patient, you know, charismatic and just top-tier gentlemen. You know, it's not for the, you know, the rabble. It's not for the mass, not for the herd, as Heidegger would say. And, uh, and I actually mean this quite sincerely. I, I was being a little bit dramatic there, but why is snooker not more popular outside of the British Isles? Really, you could you could dumb that down to question um, to why is snooker not more popular? And it's because as a game, snooker can't be sped up. It can't be changed. It has to be silent. It has to be like no music, no funfair. And it's it's an extremely, ultimately for most people, an extremely boring slow and quiet game and it you know it's it's in that sense it's a it's a relic of taste um you know it's like super super traditional people are still wearing like waistcoats and suit trousers while they go around the table and everyone's very cordial and there's all this decorum and it's somehow no one's noticed that this relic of relic of the past has somehow snuck into the modern world and that's why i love it and i do but then it's also why I love Alex Higgins because you know he was the the, the hurricane that came in and sort of disrupt disrupted that. Right, so that actually is all the questions. Um, so I'll open up the floor in the chat uh, for 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 more for any more questions people might have while while I'm still live. Um, yeah. Um. Do <laughs> I can't sit here and just answer snooker questions. I'd love to. I'd love to just commentate snooker. But do I think Chinese players will dominate in the next ten years? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, we saw it. We saw it the other day in the 
um, the championship just before Christmas with that young player coming through and absolutely wiping wiping the floor with it. And I love to see that. Um, love to see that. But there's also the great, great Portuguese wildcard, which is fantastic as well. So, yeah. Um, someone said, <laughs> have you noticed how John Michael Greer will almost inevitably somehow reference the fact that he doesn't have a TV when you have him on? I have noticed this. I have noticed this. And it's quite an um, an antiquated... You know, it's an antiquated dropout reference that I quite like because I don't know how many people really watch TV in that sense anymore, really, because I think we need to start saying, um, you know, that that was the 70s, 80s and 90s version of that. <gasps> oh, my God, you're not part of you're not one of the normal people, right, to say I don't have a TV in the 70s, 80s and 90s was scary. And I think we need to change that. Obviously, people have a TV, you know, they have the they have the the physical apparatus of the television but we might need to say something like i don't have a streaming service right or or but i mean it's interesting the other day when i was declaring that i didn't need the tv license because i don't i don't have a tv by the way uh i was declaring that that there isn't an option to say that you you know so there was four five reasons why why you why you don't need a tv license and not a single one of them was I don't watch TV. Um, they were one was I like I don't have, <laughs> I don't have the equipment, which is made me laugh as if there's someone out there who's sort of laying in an empty apartment, really yearning to consume some television. But the rest were like, I watch TV online or I watch, I just watch YouTube. You know, there was no like I don't do this, uh, which is was absurd. Um, favorite gospel, um, Matthew. Um, do I have children? No. I'd love children one day, but I have a sense that that's not what's in store for me. Uh, same with a wife, to be honest. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, entering Catholicism has changed, you know, changed that whole discussion uh, in a way. Have I ever boxed or watched boxing? No, I mean, bo I wish boxing was on more, but I've, I've never... I did uh, I did karate for a while and got to my second belt in karate, uh, Shotokan karate, uh, and then I went to one uh, lesson of Krav Maga self defense, and uh, a huge guy partnered up with me and punched me in the face uh, while I was wearing this mask thing. So I never went back. It's not for me, and I'm happy to admit that that I'm not I'm not uh, some bruiser, despite the appearance. Will the Spengler guy come back to talk about Volume Two? Yeah, he is. He's uh, he said he's more than up for volume two i just have to i just have to read it and i didn't want to you know i did i basically read volume one and i was like i'm gonna put some time between now and um volume two um what's holding me back from becoming a monk this actually this is the main i will be honest um this is the main thing holding me back from becoming a monk <laughs> no not that i haven't got the calling and i'm not even part of the I'm not even baptized yet, so it's ridiculous. But if you mean what is what might in the future hold me back from becoming, you know, entering such a vocation, um, I feel. I mean, at the moment, the Hermetics gets a roughly a hundred thousand to a hundred twenty thousand downloads a month, uh, which is really big for a philosophy podcast. Not tooting my own horn, you know, my own horn. And it's a platform which has really done exactly what I wanted to do, which is the amount of emails and messages I've had to say, I would have never known about this thinker had it not been for your 
podcast. So it's doing what I wanted it to do. I get to, I get to work the job I love, and talk to you know talk to people who are who are writing really interesting books all day. And so that's not something I'd ever really, I ever really want to give up in a way. And I mean, if that was in some sense com- compatible, if I could be like a the podcast priest or something, then maybe. Uh, but that's a calling, isn't it? And I, I, as I understand it as well, my age, 27, it's quite late to be getting into these things, some, some of them at least. F- uh, yeah, so there you go. Favourite composers? I couldn't tell you I'm not big on classical music, unfortunately. How many books in my possession at this moment? I don't know. What's, what's the average per shelf? It's about 20... I don't know, like... I don't know. Let me let me count a shelf here, and then that's about twenty per shelf. Five hundred, something like that, maybe more. Five hundred and about about a hundred of them are Gurdjieff. <laughs> Is Catholicism compatible with esotericism or occultism? Uh, I don't want. I don't want to answer that question because I'm just. I sort of answered it earlier, and I don't know like enough to give you the. It those those the, the problem is right. The problem with that question, is Catholicism compatible with esotericism or occultism? Right, what you're asking is, is Catholicism compatible with hidden mystical teachings in general, right? Not all occultism is bad. Not all, there is such a thing as Christian occultism, actually, but I'm, yeah, about that. So it's just a difficult question because you'd have to be really specific. If you said, is Catholicism compatible with the work of Crowley? No, you know, for instance. Would you ever do an episode on the work of Peter Slotted? Jake, I think that's pronounced like that. I really want to read um, You Have to Change Yourself by him. Some has been on my list for a long time. I'll do an episode, I'll happily do an episode uh, on his work, but I haven't yet to read any of it. Uh, do I like Owen Cyclops comics? Absolutely adore Owen Cyclops comics. And in a certain way, they've, they've watching his journey, because he was originally into this the same sort of mystical things as myself, watching his journey was very much an inspiration for myself. Uh, um, alongside a guy called Akira, who runs Lovecrypt um, Records, many of them. Uh, Have you talked to Peter Struzdet Hughes? Yeah, I spoke to him yesterday morning, actually. No joke. Uh, and that will be up on the 29th. So, and it's about nihilism, so there you go. Um, do enjoy the Discord a lot. Yeah, I love the Discord. I mean, a lot of those guys, a lot of those guys, really, I consider friends because you know it's um, yeah, I, I hang in, hang out in there a lot. I enjoy it. Um, strange that you studied art but never really talk about it. Any favorite artistic movement period? Um, I really like. I mean, he's not a movement or a period. My favorite artist is an artist called Ad Reinhardt, uh, who wrote, who painted black square paintings and um, the way he mixed his pigments or his paints he would get a whole tube of black oil paint an entire tube and squirt it into a bottle and then he'd get uh, like literally like a, a thimble or a finger smear of like blue and mix it in with the black and then cover that in turpentine so he had like a little vat of this and he'd shake it up and leave it for a month and he'd do this with nine colours and then he'd paint the whole canvas black and then in nine squares he would do each one with a separate black. And this meant that these, if you look up these paintings, they've had to change the photos with saturation so you can actually see it. 
but these paintings are impossible to photograph because the colors are so so uh, indiscernible that only the human eye can pick them up and it can only pick them up once you've stood in front of the painting for about 10 15 minutes and then they come through and i i just remember thinking that's astounding there you go have I read Rudolf Steiner? I read his book on Lemuria and Atlantis a long time ago. And I recently read his biography because I should be doing a talk on Steiner and Weber in relation to disenchantment at some point with um, a guy called Aaron French. Um, yeah. Someone said they can see House of Leaves in the background. House of Leaves, I adore House of Leaves. I, I You know, it was one of those hyped books that people, along with that... I, I mean, I like all the cliche books, which annoying annoying pretentious people like right i like i I, and i'm I'm fine with that i like infinite jest i like house of leaves i'm fine to say you know i enjoyed it i really don't care i thought house of leaves was so good and i thought it was a really really great horror book um did you did i really mean that tweet about liking the hobbit movies if you remove the romance right remove the romance yeah i'm on board with everyone else that the romance in the hobbit movies was silly the Hobbit is the Hobbit. The book is a children's book. It's fun if you go back and read it. Lord of the Rings is also full of songs, right? But the Hobbit is full of songs which are just joyous and silly, and the book has a silliness to it which isn't in Lord of the Rings. And I think actually that the Hobbit films portrayed it in the right light. Uh, they were just very, very fun and a really great entry in a way. What I think of John David Eber, I don't. I've heard of him so many times. I don't know much about him at all, unfortunately. Favourite Tarkovsky film? Uh, the Stalker, but I'm a big fan of Tark- Tarkovsky, yeah. Uh, since I like Owen, you should reach out to him and have him on the podcast. Yeah, it would break my rule. I'd love to. I'd love to speak to him. Maybe I'll do it as a live stream or something. I'd love to speak to him, but uh, I, have a, I have just this faint rule that even if people just use an anonymous... Maybe Owen Cyclops is enough, but it's a bit too far one way for me. If it was real name, it's fine. It's pseudonyms fake names are fine but they have to be like realistic in a way but he has got a new book out and it would be yeah it'd be nice to talk to him in a way because we've we've both it seems we've both done the same journey um so maybe i'll do a live stream with him at some point um yeah um yeah and and people are talking about the hobbit movies i think there's just this 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 and any more questions please let me know i'll probably go for another maybe at most 30 minutes so please say um the, 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 I will comment on this though that this whole thing of um, oh, I hate the Hobbit movies and you get this sort of v- virulent social pressure to just dunk on them and it almost becomes like a cathartic act to say you know what actually I like them like I did they're enjoyable films um, same with the Resident Evil films as I said like I do sort of like quite uh, cliche cinema in a way oh sorry yeah someone did ask that besides enjoying snooker do you also enjoy chess or any other brain sport no i couldn't i can't snooker and chess are different as far as i see what you mean i see what you mean thinking ahead and stuff like that um but i'm not good at that form of logic um never never could be um brain sport no i mean on the on the side at the moment i'm just making scale models so my hobbies are watching snooker making scale models and uh reading dense philosophy books so you could say that i'm basically mentally in my retirement at 27 but you know i enjoy my life so there you go 
Uh, I could read John David Ebert's Art After Metaphysics. Yeah, I could give it a read and give him an interview. I'll see. I'll look into it. This is what I say to everyone because there's often there's often reasons or caveats that I can't do things and things like that. So I'll give it a look. Uh, do I go on other podcasts? I've been on a few. Um, I've been on a few. I've been on maybe five or six now. I went on the the store recently, which was very enjoyable to discuss exiting modernity. Um, someone said Ernst Jung a concept of the Anarch for these dystopian times would be an awesome topic for the podcast by the way uh, I've done a talk on the Anarch on Amishville with Russell Berman uh, that was in August 2020 so you can look that up if you just type in the to be honest if you type in the Anarch on YouTube there ain't going to be much on it and I think um, uh, yeah you should be able to find it have I heard of Eric father I've heard the name, but I uh, I haven't read anything of him. Do I work with a tarot? No, I don't. An old man at 27, yeah. I was an old man at 23. And thanks for the com- compliments on the Zerzan interview. He's very... He's... He's, um, he's pleasant to talk to, John, and I'm... Uh, I'm respectful of his stance that he hasn't moved he um you know he just said he's a he's a luddite there you go someone said thoughts on bap and his adjacent sphere of right-wing twitter bodybuilders there's um there's aspects of it like with with Solbra and the affirmations which i'm not keen with but anything which is really promoting like a a healthy lifestyle of bodybuilding and eating you know eggs and tropical fruits and things like that and nothing against it and there's there is a part of me also that's very sympathetic to that sort of uh, Nietzschean vitalist taking up arms against the you know the deadness of the deadness of the soul of the modern world you know I'm I'm never gonna uh, and it, you know it's somewhat refreshing yeah in a way how do we how do you think we should prepare <laughs> all right they're coming in the question's coming in how do you think we should prepare for collapse I've I've answered this question many many times and I've always said that actually preparation for collapse yeah sure um you know filling your filling your cupboards full of goods and things is always going to be helpful but really what the actual thing you need to do is be ready for change um be ready to yeah just be ready for the whole world to change and for you to not be able to suddenly use something and not allow that to just basically ground you and be like, oh, I don't know what to do, and go into some sort of weird um, coma or something like that, right? Um, can I do a podcast dedicated to René Guénon and the perennial philosophy? Yeah, potentially. I mean, it's it's once again, it's it's finding someone. Um, it, it, it's very difficult. Uh, I've got some stuff coming up actually with Tom Cheatham about for people who are interested in that sort of thing. Tom Cheatham on Henry Corbin, but it's going to be like maybe three parts because. Corban is extremely, uh, you know, fragmented. He's got so many things he touches on. Uh, Someone says, still struggling with the cold. No, it's pretty much gone now. It's pretty much gone. But, yeah. Uh, What do I think of the current, uh, uh, our current Archbishop? I don't know enough to know. Do I ever go on lit? Uh, Slash lit on 4chan. Not really. I know what you're on about, but no, not really. I don't. I don't, most of my time is spent reading or working or doing the other stuff for um, Idea Market, the other podcasts that I work for and, you know, who are 
doing really great things. So, you know, shout out to those guys. Um, but m- most of my time is spent working with on their stuff or with them or doing the Hermetic stuff. So I don't have t- time to, like, browse 4chan, you know, like back in the day. No. Someone said, considering my head shape, a longer full beard would suit me well. The camera, I don't know, this will sound like I'm just saying it, but the camera sort of turns my head into some sort of weird Play-Doh and excuse it I don't really look like that in real life the lighting's terrible that's not my vanity by the way um thoughts about vegetarianism or veganism I think it can work I think I think it genuinely I'm not one of these uh um people who it's like oh you have to eat you know carnival worked well for me and I still eat a high amount of meat but I think the thing with vegetarianism and veganism is that you have to be really, really conscious, one, of what you're eating, as in, um, like, the qualities of the food. You can't just go on to replacement foods. And you have to be a very conscious eater in terms, in terms of digestion. You have to sit and digest it, because otherwise you're just not going to get the nutrients. These are lower-developed things, you know, vegetables. They're not, it's not, it hasn't got the same spiritual density as meat. Um, oh, that's a good question. Did I hesitate as coming out as Catholic? Um, uh, a little bit with some friends. A little bit with some friends. I mean, not not because I was worried they'd do anything, but but because you have to be one. I think the main thing is how to be sure of your decision. I don't want it to be like oh, I'm doing, I'm becoming a Catholic, and then next week you know it's some fad or something. So I'm, it, it took a long time. It was a few months before I'd started telling a few people but I mean I don't have many friends so it didn't <laughs> it probably won't surprise you I don't yeah I don't have many friends so it didn't it didn't bother me that much um the thing you know I made a conscious decision over Christmas actually funnily enough I made a conscious decision to not be preachy and not bring it up and I found that actually many of my friends I found that they messaged me on Christmas day or New Year's to to actually ask me about it like oh did you go to church today and um that was an interesting a- a- aspect of it in a way um what hang on someone says you're one of my favorite podcasts for the past few months what perks does joining the discord have and how much uh, discord's free again the discord's f- open and free um i think i've left the perk thing up on patreon uh there's there's so there's a few so far the perks really of joining which is um, you know you could do it for five dollars a month to get everything there's a lot of exclusive blog posts there's a fair amount at the moment of exclusive so there's there's some talks on Gerard which are exclusive for patrons there's some talks on uh blimey I forgot there's more exclusive talks for patrons uh, Ludwig Klagers as well but I'm planning on much more patron-only stuff this year just to, you know, ramp up patron support. The next one that should be, I should be recording next week, will be on Ernst Jünger's On Pain, and that will be for patrons only. So, yeah. Um, But Discord's free. Um, Do I live in the city or the country? I live in the country, and I will never, probably never in my life live in the city. I just can't do it. Uh, Someone said I'm condemned to death. (laughs) Innocent. What would my last meal be? Um, I don't know why this is a bigger question than the rest of them. Food's obviously too important. It would be a load of things. I remember once seeing a guy who 
I looked into the last meals of people and he had like a bucket of fried chicken with chips and a Coke with ice cream and he watched, he ate that whilst watching the Lord of the Rings trilogy. So I would include that aspect of it into mind that I probably would watch the Lord of the Rings trilogy as a, as a final farewell. And I would eat, um, it would probably be maybe, oh, I don't know. Well, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be, I can't digest things all that well, so and I'm not going to be alive the next day, so I can finally eat what I want. It probably would be like a massively hot curry with a load of sides, like Indian sides, like sagaloo and aloo gobi with like peshwari naan and a huge lamb, uh, lamb madras. It's usually my go-to. Yeah, I do that. Why do I think Pomo philosophy gets such a bad rep? Because people, people, people haven't like most things that get bad rep. People just haven't spent the time um, reading it at all. Um, it also, you know, just to blame everything on postmodern philosophy, I think, is a real... It isn't exactly fair. I don't think the philosophers have gone out there to uh, to do that. Uh, it's a very difficult question, though. Yeah. Um, blimey. Favourite architectural period or school? There's a certain part of me that sort of likes Art Deco. I didn't used to. I hate Art Nouveau. I really dislike Art Nouveau. But Deco, there's something... I don't know, pleasantly malicious about it. Uh, I also like um, Gothic, of course, but I don't, I don't know much about um, architecture, pardon me. What do I think of a law, especially as theology? I, I meant to be reading at some point the kingdom and the present of the presence of the kingdom, but I haven't got around to it. Still don't know a ton about a theology, unfortunately. Um, someone's, someone asks, is Christianity experiencing resurgence? I would say so because but primarily on the basis that all the alternatives that were tried that that were that the new atheists thought they were giving really had as their foundations the whole time christianity just stripped of the divine and now people are realizing that you really have two options there either you read the theology properly which the new atheists didn't and realize god's real and you go that way towards revelation or you enter into nihilism because you realize that actually the entire basis for the ethics and morals of the new atheists is reliant on something which apparently doesn't exist. Therefore, they're all relative and it doesn't matter. So you've got the split there. And uh, that's why a lot of people are moving back because we've had that push of complete relativism for years and years and years and years and years now, like since the 60s. We've had every sort of type of personal liberal revolution in terms of bodily autonomy, financial autonomy, gender autonomy. And we've all realized that all these uh, material freedoms of the temporal world have simply brought us all to misery and of course that many people are heading back towards christianity you know you retreat to god as um, augustine says uh, are bringing us back there for this very reason that the world's just on uh, an ethical and moral freefall and the only place of respite is god so that's why that's why and yes it is uh, ignore this, oh, someone, ignore this before we already addressed this. How compatible are occultism Catholicism? I've addressed it uh, about twice in this talk, so apologies. Uh, you might have to listen to it back through. Will I update the Meta Nomad blog sometimes this year? I have a, uh, my new blog, I'll link, because I'm, I've, the Meta Nomad blog, I moved from that, because I've put it in the chat there. Um, the Meta Nobad blog was a, was a time, and uh, the Venture with Reality one, which I'm now writing at the moment, is really accepting of the Gurdjieff and religious 
things which completely changed me, which somewhat not incompatible, but which changed so drastically from the Meta Nomad blog that I thought to stop that and just keep that as it was. Someone said embrace full nihilism and stop deluding yourself. No, um, I, I won't because um, ultimately, like the choices between the choices between God and nihilism. Um, and faith, once again, faith isn't. I mean, this is this is a very serious thing, I guess. The choices between the, the the choices I see it at the moment for a lot of people is between God and nihilism, because there's nothing on there is there is no spectrum on the nihilist side. There can't be, um, because if 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 there is a meaninglessness, then any value is entirely subjective, which basically enters everything into a complete relativism that can't be escaped, as far as I'm concerned. Um, now. Well, someone's saying capitalise nihilism with a capital N. Well, no, all values are meaningless, so why should I bother to do that? And you're saying embrace nihilism. Well, why should I embrace it? Everything's meaningless, so why should I embrace it? Right, so it's just a continual problem. It's dumb. It's a, it's a midwit meme for idiots. Um, I, I'm sick of... I'm sort of sick, actually, like physically sick of nihilism and hearing about it. It's It, it has its conclusions. Um, and if you want to enter into it, and I will say the thing that I always say about nihilists and nihilism. Why is it that even in a world where everything is meaningless, right? In a world where to, to for instance, let me get this right. If everything is, if all values are meaningless and there is no meaning in the world as nihilists state, then why is it that everyone who proclaims themselves a nihilist always heads towards hedonistic value? Right? Why is it they always head towards pleasure? Because in a in a truly nihilistic world, the difference between lifting weights and being healthy, and eating like a pig and having sex with everyone you want, isn't there isn't a difference. There's no difference between everything because everything is meaningless. And equally in such a world, why would you be sad when things when 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 people die, when your pets die? Everything's meaningless. It's, a, it's, it's, someone says there's no alternative. It's just utter stupidity. And I'm, I'm so sick. I'm so sick to death of, of nihilism because it's, it's had its day and it's boring and it, it can't answer for itself. That's the problem. If everything is meaningless, then nihilism simply can't answer for itself. Because it will, it inherently undermines itself. So you just enter into this, just do what you want. If you want to do what you want, do what you want. But the reason you do certain things and the reason you feel certain things is because there has to be an underlying. Can't be bothered with such a, uh, a, a such a dry and and silly um, thing. And I, I personally, I remember back in the day when I was an atheist, Christopher Hitchens used to say that the the duty of atheists the burden of he used to say the burden of proof is on the religious to prove god and i actually think the opposite is true ever since, i mean if you read mercy uh, history of religious ideas from day one from day one of literal recorded history there has been belief in in god or a god a form of god Right from day one, there hasn't been a belief in a, a stupid chemical reaction chain since day one. All right, 
God's belief and faith have been around since humans have been around. And of course they'll come with their arguments, but it's on them. Who cares? It's between God and nihilism. Someone said it's between God and nihilism, but I can't sincerely find a secretum me and mihi. My advice, seriously, is, is pray. Honestly, pray. It's not something I, you know, there's no book you can read for that. Pray. Someone asks, what is worse, nihilism or irony poisoning? Or are they the same underneath? Well, they're the same underneath because irony is that, oh, it might mean something else. But you enter into what's called by, oh, I can't remember his name. But there's a great book on irony. The Rhetoric of Irony, it's called. But there's a great book on, for instance, you have sincerity. And then you have a stable irony where someone's saying one thing, but everyone understands that they mean something else. That's fine, as far as I'm concerned, in like comedy or whatever. But then you have unstable ironies where it's like irony of irony of irony of irony. And and, and, and everything enters into this just nihilism of language. And that I can't be bothered with. Um... If someone says you can be ascetic, hedonistic, right-wing, left-wing, doesn't matter, it's pure freedom. Well, no, it's not pure, it's not pure freedom. It's meaningless, so freedom, freedom doesn't mean anything. There's no such thing as freedom if you're nihilist. There is no value such as freedom. So, there you go. What other podcasts do you listen to? I, I just don't get the time to, unfortunately. Um, yeah. Um, right. We're at two hours. We're just over... Uh, last question then. Thoughts on Ratzinger's Jesus books? I haven't... I've got um, the Introduction to Christianity to read by Ratzinger, but I haven't got there uh, at the moment. Anyway, um, I need to go make my dinner. Thank you, everyone, for... Um, thanks, everyone, for joining. Um, I feel I've covered uh, a lot. Thanks, everyone, for watching. Thanks for all the support... Um, last, you know, ever since, ever since we began, 10k subscribers, thanks very much, and yeah, if you fancy supporting, then there's links in uh, descriptions for Patreon, 